This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Avi Stamen, co-host of the Scholarly Communication podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I dedicate my time to my family, biking out in the mountains, and running my company, Academic Language Experts, an author services company dedicated to helping scholars elevate their research prior to publication and grant proposals to receive research funding. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Sally Wilson, Vice President of Publishing at Emerald Publishing. Sally is an experienced publishing professional responsible for the strategic development of Emerald's global publishing program, which comprises of journals, books, and teaching cases with a commitment to real-world impact, a focus on research aligned to the UN SDGs, innovation through non-traditional content types, and author experience. Sally represents Emerald on the Working Group of Joint Commitment for Action on Inclusion and Diversity in Publishing and the SDG Publisher Compact Fellows. Outside of work, Sally enjoys cooking and entertaining family and friends and going to the theater and cinema. Sally, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Thank you for taking the time. And I'm glad that you added the uh, more personal part to your bio, because for some reason, um, other folks don't seem to do that. And I think it's it's, it's <laughs> nice to give you a little bit of a, a window into uh, into who you are beyond uh, beyond your work, your work attire. Um, yeah, so definitely. maybe you could take me back a minute and, and just tell me a little bit about if there was a moment or a period in time um, earlier in your career where you kind of realized that... Um, academic publishing was going to be your calling or that you fell in love with academic publishing? Well, um, to my detriment, I fell in love with scholarly publishing, academic publishing quite late, to be honest. So I had about a 25-year career, uh, primarily at Waters Kluwer, but I wasn't in their academic publishing division, but um, a variety of business-to-business publishing roles from sort of production, editorial, product, uh, and publishing, of course, and, and commercial roles. Um, And I joined Emerald in 2019. And what attracted me to both Emerald and academic publishing is just that belief that our actions as a publisher um, can help make a real world difference. And not only in academia, but beyond academia. So um, 
yeah, to my detriment, I, I, I'm full of regrets that I didn't enter um, academic publishing earlier. Definitely. Can you, I, I'm, I'm curious if you could just expand upon that for a minute about mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the impact, um, you know, uh, uh, approach. And I know that that's sort of a, a word that maybe has been used a lot. Definitely. I know in the grant, um, uh, you know, side of things, it's, there's a whole impact section of, of most grants mm-hmm. that are written. Um, but maybe you could tell us is it like a, in a very practical, pragmatic way, how that could impact um, the way that a publisher approaches its work, such as, em- such as Emerald. Yeah, I think often when uh, we think about impact, we think as the publication as the impact um, for the research. And it's it's so much more than that. It's actually that real world application where you can actually see it making a difference to society and the people within our society. Um, so what we've been trying to do is have conversations at Emerald with researchers before they've even thought about publication, when they're starting that research, um, just sort of a check-in, how's it going, what are you working on? Um, and then hopefully, you know, not being naive, when they're, they're time to publish, they might remember that conversation with us at Emerald. And then we can support them with the publication, of course, but also thinking about how we can support them elevating their author platform and getting their research beyond the paywall, beyond academia, through through novel content types. Um, so, you know, through podcasts, through blog posts, through um, using uh, social media effectively. I love that approach of kind of, you know, catching those that those really interesting research projects early on in the process. I actually made this argument in an article I recently published in Scholarly Kitchen that, you know, in the books realm, um, you know, acquisitions editors, a big part of their job is having these engaging conversations early on in the process um, to kind of help the authors think through their ideas and come up with something which is really going to be meaningful and impactful, not only for, you know, those 5, 10, 15, 20 readers that, you know, subscribe to the journal, but well beyond. And and so I really love that idea of extending that to the journal world, whereby we don't only become interested once you've got all your results and once you've kind of, once everything's already done, essentially, but rather... Yeah. Um, having some sort of impact on the direction or, you know, kind of strategic priorities of what are some of the topics that we want to be exploring. Yeah. And we created a new role at Emerald uh, about two years ago now called the um, Publishing Development Manager role. Um, And they uh, work with uh, their networks and try and go beyond their existing networks to um, to, to uh, reach out to new uh, researchers. So they look at uh, what's being done by institutions it's through the lens of the UN SDGs. Um, and they each have a sort of an area of focus. So healthier lives, quality education, responsible management, um, and a fairer society. And they're looking at the research that's being done in those institutions and the people who are aligned to um, the SDGs that they sort of, they caretake for, for Emerald. So they're, they're trying to build that network work beyond um, just having conversations, as I say, at publication, but really trying to understand um, those institutions that align to the UN SDGs and the work that they're doing. So, I'm, and I'm going off script here, so please stop me if I'm, <laughs> if I'm <laughs> but I have to, I'm, I'm really curious about this. Um, there was, without going into detail, um, we got ourselves into a bit of hot water um, a few months back. Uh, we ran a, we ran a, um, uh, a panel, uh, a live panel on uh, how to 
uh, how publishers can impact um, publishing strategy and agenda um, with a leading medical publisher. And we didn't think twice about it when we put out the, the, um, you know, kind of the, the, the promo and the advertising for it. And then we got a lot of flack on Twitter from scholars who came along and said, well, who are you to dictate an agenda of, you know, as the publisher to dictate an agenda or what we should be researching? Your job is, mm-hmm. is purely in, um, to take what we deem to be important and, and, and get it out there. So I wonder if you've come across any pushback in terms of setting some strategic priorities and kind of where you see that line and the balance between, um, you know, letting the researchers come with the innovative ideas, but also saying, well, here are things that Emerald finds to be important and value and wants to publish about. Yeah, we haven't had a lot of pushback. I think it's, um, you know, it's it's a two way conversation. It's it's we're trying to be a facilitator or having those collaborative relationships. So when we're thinking about themes, we look at, um, you know, where research is happening. We look at where funding is happening. We, and then we try and connect the dots, but it's very much a two-way um, conversation. We're not looking to dictate, but we're we're looking to um, probe, ask provocative questions, and then um, see how the the research lines up. So, um, you know, we might have a provocative questions such as should should billionaires exist, and then we'll look at what research is happening that that might um, you know continue the debate. And it's an it's a, a way of curating existing um, content that we have, um, as well as signposting uh, new research or just new thought leadership pieces, blog posts, just to stimulate that conversation. Um, and as I say, it's usually through the, the the lens of of the UN SDGs, and so you might think about it, you know, linked to SDG two, no poverty. Um, so it's just trying to sort of theme. Um, where research is happening and, and just trying to bring it to that wider audience. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it does a lot of good. I mean, A is being, you know, not deciding on your own, but rather taking on some of these bigger challenges and tackling those. So it's not like, you know, uh, uh, you can just, it, it's not a commercial argument, rather it's a, it really is related back to greater priorities, which, you know, society has deemed to be important. I think is important. And I also think it's important to, to, to kind of define who you are so that potential authors know that they're coming to the right place, right? Because if you, it, you know, authors, I don't know that if the, the first thought they have is, well, which publisher am I going to publish in? But I guess the more you're aligned with certain ideas or concepts or frameworks, the more authors say, oh, I've got something, you know, it's going to be a natural step to consider Emerald. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, it's around um, almost sort of, you know, positioning yourself in the market for the things that we're we're passionate about but we hope also you know those in the um, social sciences and applied sciences communities are, are also um, looking at thinking about doing research into so it's yeah. it's sort of it's about leading and responding um, but it's it's really about having that two-way dialogue yeah so Tell us just a little bit about the different hats I'm sure that you wear um, as the VP of Publishing at Emerald. Um, what exactly um, does that mean? What does your day look like? And kind of how do you um, how do, how do you see your role when you reflect back on it? Um, it's a really hands-on role, um, and it's it is a lot of. Um, there's no typical day. 
it's a really good mix of strategic and operational, which I really love. Um, and I get to work closely with researchers as well as college colleagues in sort of various functions across the business so you know product production editorial sales and marketing Um, and it's also an opportunity to collaborate with others in the publishing industry so to build out those networks um, and talk about the big issues of the day that contribute to author experience and the scholarly record so yeah there's really no typical day Um, it's a very hands-on role um And that's what I really enjoy, you know, having those big strategic um, projects, but also just getting into the to the weeds of the day to day and the operation and what the teams are working on. Of course. Now, it's interesting because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Emerald, um, you describe yourselves as a mission based publisher. Is that is that correct? That's so right. I'm familiar. I, I'm used to hearing that term um, for in the context of, you know, university presses who maybe are non for not for profits and, um, okay. you know, uh, uh, are connected usually with a, uh, an institution. Would you say the definition is similar um, in your context or do you mean something else by that? And, and kind of how do you at Emerald define um, being mission based and how does that impact your policy? Yeah, so we define mission-based as having a commitment to ethical and equitable publishing practices and and promoting uh, research with that real-world impact. So um, we feel our role is to highlight inequalities, to help promote collective action for change. So um, to give an example, we launched an impact manifesto in 2022, and this was essentially our rallying cry to all those in the research and publishing sector for change to advance academic culture and incentives and research evaluation. And um, how we uh, work is we have an impact advisory board and we have signatories of the manifesto. And together we aim to break down barriers to promote change and encourage this collective action across the research and publishing sector. So we've taken steps towards um, initiatives such as Real Impact Awards. We signed DORA and we became a founding signatory of the SDG Publisher Compact, um, as well as launching impact literacy tools. And then we followed this up with um, a campaign called Are You In? And that's where we're really just trying to um, share best practices, encourage wider participation in driving change. Um, And we focus on six six commitments in the manifesto. So, as I say, it's things that, you know, challenge the the status quo. So um, we have a focus on alternatives to traditional metrics. We look at those beyond the publication formats and new channels for dissemination. Um, And really, you know, trying to exploit uh, partnerships, um, you know, create healthy practices for impactful research. So um, I think at the moment we've had 500 signatories that have pledged their support to the campaign. And we've also got a a LinkedIn group where members share um, examples of initiatives they've implemented. And the first step is as as simple as just making a, a commitment to act Um, And at Emerald, we don't have all of the answers and we're also very much on this journey ourselves. But what we try to do is ask provocative questions and challenge the status quo. So we're just one voice, but we really believe that real systemic change can only be achieved by us all working together in the research, education and publishing sectors to come together. Um, So Emerald will keep banging the drum for that to happen. But we, we just look for opportunities to work really collaboratively across the sector. 
Is there something tangible that you could say, okay, by the time that I'm done with my, you know, my stint here and my, my time, if I could accomplish this or that, that would really be meaningful to, to, to you personally? I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting because at the moment we're in that, the, the, the decade of action and, and a lot of the, the research that we publish in Emerald is, is really aligned to those UN SDGs. Um, and I think we've sort of been blighted by, you know, um, things that have held us back in this decade of action. So it started in 2020 and it ends in 2030. Um, and we've got a lot to face into as a society to achieve those really ambitious um, goals. I'd like to feel that um, we've achieved um, some way to highlight um, the wicked problems that we're all facing in the world to provide resources and support through working with researchers and providing them with a platform to to, to get their research out um, further than, than, than academia. Um, and that, that might be in a variety of ways through, through um, you know, a panel conversations, through podcasts, through um, just really increasing that the, the real world impact of their research um, in a small way. So um, I don't really know what good looks like. And I think even when we get to 2030, we'll still be adapting and changing because there'll be new pressures. You know, I think the, the decade of action has obviously been impacted by things like COVID and now, you know, increasing conflicts such as the war in Ukraine, ecological disasters. I mean, we were all talking last week about, you know, plastics in, in the ocean. So um, as a society, we've got a lot of challenges. So if the work that I do with Emerald in a small part can make a difference, um, but I don't think we'll ever stop. We'll always be adapting and responding to change because change is that yeah. constant. It's, it's, it amazes me that it, this, it was sort of sounds somewhat, somewhat intuitive um, that you had set this as the decade, uh, you know, of change and, 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 and set a priority for expanding the reach of academic of research well beyond, um, you know, the, the ivory tower or the academic, um, you know, sort of typical, because I think that that stereotype was, which is, you know, like many stereotypes have, have a, have an element of truth to them. Um, it really did kind of bear it bear itself out uh, during the pandemic, right? With with um, you know a lot of uh, skepticism around um, the scientific process and how we go about um, you know communicating those scientific results in almost in real time, uh, so to speak. Um, and I think that was something that a little bit you know may have caught us in the academic world as a whole with our pants down, you know. And, and but but maybe in a in a positive sense, sheds light on well what what are those things that we need to do in order to ensure that what the high impact research that we're doing really gets broken down, um, translated, if you will, into um, language that we can all understand and, and, and wrap our heads around. Yeah, definitely. And it was really interesting when you started hearing, you know, peer review being discussed in news reports as, as the research was coming through. I don't think I've ever known that to happen, you know, in a, in a, in a typical news broadcast. Um, and it also highlighted the importance of getting content in front of the paywall and, you know, publishers, uh, you know, making a commitment to, to do that. Um, and then I guess it also highlighted some of the frustrations in the process, you know, the speed to publication, um, you know, it, it, it takes a while, but but for, for good reason, because, you know, it needs to be rigorous and robust. So, you know, you had a real world 
um, emergency and um, some of the ways of working could be frustrating, but also you want to make, you want to deliver the right solutions because literally lives depended on it. So it was a, a very interesting time. Yeah. And there were things that were, you know, alongside the legitimate frustrations of, 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 of slow time, there were things that were published too quickly and, and had yes. a negative impact as a result. So exactly. yeah, know, I think we all learned. Um, there's a reason that, why there's that academic rigor. <laughs> correct. And, and when the pendulum swings too quickly from one side to the other, without it being responsible, uh, tested and verified steps, um, you do run risks of, you know, um, I don't, I don't think your typical journalist would be able to dif- differentiate between a preprint and, uh, you know, a, a, a final article. And that doesn't mean that there isn't value to both, but it does mean that there's we've got work cut out for us to um, to make sure that it's underst- clearly understood and defined and delineated. So let's let's swing back around to the SDGs for a minute um, and tell us how the SDGs really impact the publishing industry specifically. So um, a lot of publishers and, and Emerald's proud to be a, a founding signatory have signed the UN SDGs Publisher Compact. So this was launched in 2020. Um, and I think it was a result of a collaboration between the International Publishers Association and the UN. Um, and it's di- designed to inspire publishers to take uh, worldwide action and accelerate the progress towards those 17 UN SDGs by, by 2030, that decade of action. Um, and as we've said, it's it's important now more than ever since COVID, since um, environmental issues, times of conflict. Um, and for, for Emerald, it was a real natural step for us being this mission-led publisher. So we had already been committed to promoting equality and, and mission-based research that supported the UN SDGs. Um, and, um, you know, we'd always, already started um talking about having a fairer society, supporting these healthier lives, promoting quality education, um, mitigating climate crisis. And um, by signing the the compact, Emerald and other publishers are really making a clear commitment to developing sustainable practices and really championing the SDGs, Um, you know, publishing content that will highlight, inform, develop and inspire action in that direction. Um, and at Emerald, we're also seeking to create new measures and definitions for impact that really reflect the modern research area that's increasingly interdisciplinary. So, you know, the nitty problem, nitty gritty problems that we face as a society, they can't be solved by just one discipline. And it's about bringing people together. Um, and, and they're framed perfectly by those those UN SDGs, whether it's, you know, zero hunger or, or action on, on climate change. So, um it, it it takes more than one discipline um, and it's in, it's how how publishers can um, band together to collect you know to have this collective action so um, publishers commit to things like stating their sustainability policies and targets on on their websites they incorporate the SDGs and the targets um, into the the content that they publish um, they uh, raise awareness um, amongst their staff, suppliers, customers, and stakeholders, and they collaborate with others to advance the progress. Um, and that also includes putting aside necessarily funding, so having budget and other resources um, to support SDG-focused projects. Um, so there's lots of, of things that publishers can can do um, with their own uh suppliers and networks and also things that they can do together and that's what we try and do as well with the SDG fellows. 
you, you know, the, the what's really interesting piece to me is the interdisciplinary piece um, for a few reasons. First of all, in my work running an author services company, we get a lot of complaints from uh, researchers who are interdisciplinary who say, you know, I went to the, you know, I went to the economics journal and they told me that my, uh, you know, that my article was too sociological. And then they go to the sociology journal and they're, they're told that the, the article is too, you know, too, too economics heavy. Um, so I think, and that's not specific to Emerald, but I think there's work for us to do in the publishing industry to make sure we can support and, and do that. And I think it's, it's especially interesting to me, this is something I've been kind of processing and, and, and more recently is that, you know, I think what happens sometimes, especially as we automate our processes and systems is we have to categorize and classify, right? We have to, um, you know, force someone to choose what is your field, right? It's something as simple and basic as that, which is something that, you know, our programmers come to us and say, well, okay, you want to try and personalize and customize well we need to categorize and classify and i think that 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 is a it is there's a benefit to it because it can really speed up and automate processes that don't need the human input on the other hand it can limit and and put people into frameworks um that are limiting um that don't allow them the full possibility and capabilities of you know being able to express something entirely new so i don't know that there's a i don't know <laughs> have a, a a solution to that issue but it, i definitely think it's something that we kind of always need to be thinking about is are the rubrics that we're setting up um, helping authors succeed or are they actually limiting them in, in, in certain ways that maybe we didn't even intend? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think um, increasingly you're seeing launches of interdisciplinary journals um, and, uh, you know, ways to rank those journals as well be because, you know, we all want to have um, a range of of different metrics to rank value but you also need to signpost along traditional metrics so so researchers know where to publish and I think even in in um, uh, journals that have um, an, um, a more narrow field of vision aligned to their subject discipline um, there's opportunities to use things like special issues to uh, introduce that interdisciplinary um, focus um, and that's something that we um, are doing increasingly at Emerald and, and, and other publishers to to um, also you know try and tackle the the focus of the UN SDGs that just by nature are interdisciplinary so we want to capture that research and and share it with a with a range of audiences as well through through the special issue interesting I'm curious how you know I, I've always kind of thought about the special issue and, and and there are some scholars that we work with that really kind of focus on that but I think most most you know find that maybe it's it, First of all, there's the time. Usually, there's a time limitation as opposed to a general um, journal entry. And 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 secondly, they may or may not have you know research ready that can answer that. Um, so I find it to be kind of an interesting um, form of publishing. Do you find that the response there or the ability to publish there is easier or harder? Or you know, authors have a is, is that a, is that a form um, that authors have been kind of picking up and 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 responding to positively? Yeah, they have actually. I mean, we you have to have a longer lead time to allow for um, authors to submit papers, particularly if they're finishing off research. But it's 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 something that's actually really welcome, and um, and we do get um, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, people submitting papers to special issues. Um, so we, it it tends to run between sort of twelve and eighteen months to to make sure that we can. Um, get enough submissions to to launch the special issue but it's it's something that 
that uh, researchers do respond really well to. Um, and it's it's a really nice way to also introduce guest editors within the, the journal itself. So, um, yeah, it's it's something that's really well received and, and just... Um, we t- we tend to find that we get a lot of engagement from from the thematic um, nature of special issues. Got it. Um, okay, I wanna I wanna get to what I think is probably what I I'm most most excited um, to speak to you about today, and I I applaud you for your uh, for your being brave and in, in discussing a topic which I think um, we can all say is, um, you know, none of us are experts about. There's actually something nice about the fact that there's a topic that we're all, we're all ignorant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you had mentioned before, it's really interesting because you had mentioned before that no one had paid attention to peer review until all of a sudden the pandemic hit and everyone's talking about peer review. Well, I can say a similar statement for um, large language models is that I don't think anyone cared, um, you know, kind of the back, back end of maybe how uh, large translation or editing um, technologies worked um, as long as it produced good content. And all of a sudden we have been thrown into the limelight uh, in the uh, language services industry of trying to explain to the world um, what these kind of uh, big jumps in technology are and how they're based really on, on, on the use of human language. So with that as an, as an intro, um, I'm curious to hear from you about some of the particular challenges or issues that you're facing um, in Emerald uh, with the release of obviously AI tools in general, but I think specifically GPT has kind of brought a lot of those tools that existed for the last few years to the masses. What are some of the issues that you're contending with or that maybe some of the your fellow publishers um, are contending with? Yeah, so I think the specific issues we're contending with at the moment is how we adapt our policies and ways of working that is reflective of the positive benefits of, of tools such as ChatGPT, while also trying to prevent publication of work that might be plagiarised and isn't based on research conducted by the, the author or authors. So um, there's lots of conversation internally um, at Emerald and also among colleagues, not just in the publishing function. So I think that's what is really interesting about ChatGPT. It's just really sparked the imagination of of everybody, it seems. Um, and internally, the debate was has been really driven, actually, by a colleague in finance who's just really dived in and and um, sort of removed his accountant hat and just said, you know, what are you really worried about this? Well, you know, how's it going to affect publishing? So how we're responding just internally for fun at the moment is just is running a range of experiments with ChatGPT with volunteers across the company to discover more and, and really have that distributed knowledge you know it's um you know how can we um understand this new technology and also identify its impacts on our respective functions and publishing as a whole so that's certainly been happening um and we're proceeding with caution but we're also sort of remaining positive about the benefits and then in terms of um responding um and what other publishers are doing um I think it's just, I think we're all agreed that um, ChatGPT can't be an author. <laughs> um, you know, we cannot consider it to be capable of initiating either an, an original piece of, of work uh, of, without human direction. Um, and then we're sort of relying on, uh, you know, Coates' position on um, AI tools so that these tools cannot fulfill the role or be listed as an author in an article. 
Um, I think some publishers have stated that the, the final decision about the use of these tools to assist with writing a paper may lie with the individual journal editor. Um, and I think we've all um, stated that transparency is key. So if these tools have been used, you know, there has to be attribution and acknowledgement. Um, and then if they have been used in some way to create the paper, ultimately the responsibility for the integrity of the content generated um, lies with the author. But it is a great leveler. Uh, it changes and evolves every day. I think there's, I don't know how many stories in the newspapers every day. So I think the situation is in a state of flux and um, policy decisions will evolve um, really on the fly as we, we get to learn more. Um, so Emerald, we, you know, we are asking authors at submission to confirm that manuscript has been created, um, not using uh, ChatGPT or, or such a tool. Um, and if a portion of the manuscript has been used to, to flag it and, and do that acknowledgement um, uh, in, in methods and acknowledgement at submission. And then we're looking at as well as how the submission systems can um, evolve to, to really clearly um, uh, help the author flag and detect. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, but I think transparency is is the key because I don't think the publishers want to hold back the tide, and and there probably are many, you know, there are many benefits to this technology, but I think we just need to ensure that um, you know ethical practices um, are being followed and its use is being disclosed. Yeah, interesting. All right, there's a lot to unpack there, but we'll we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll try to do it slowly, um, slowly and carefully. I'm so I'm curious first of all in terms of I've seen the, you, you know, you mentioned the word tr plagiarism and I've seen that thrown out a lot. Um, yeah. I wonder kind of where, you know, to what degree um, the use of GPT, let's say at least for, you know, uh, for, for, for finding and sourcing materials or for even for helping with parts of the writing, you know, to what degree that would fall under the traditional category of plagiarism in the sense of, you know, um, do we see plagiarism as taking someone else's work and using it um, without attribution, um, or do we see it as passing off work that you did not create as your own? And I think that's before before this existed. I think that you know distinction was sort of um, you know semantic oh, only semantic. Whereas now I think it's a really important distinction to try and make. Um, I just recently read that um, uh, plagiarism actually comes from the the Latin word to kidnap, uh, which is also interesting. Um, <laughs> So I don't know what that tells us about um, uh, uh, plagiarism, but I guess we are kinetic. So I'm just curious kind of where you fall on that, on that issue of that question. Yeah, I, I think originally I probably would have said the former. So, you know, taking someone else's work and passing it off as your own. But, but now I guess is, did, did that work even exist or is it a combination of a, a number of sources and, right. um, it's. I think it's. It's far more. I think it's probably evo an evolving and more sophisticated definition of plagiarism now, because of the ability of these tools to take a lot of data that's out there and and combine it and, and you know, um, compress yeah, the, the, it together. That's the question that I've been asking myself. It's like, well, what do we do as humans? Like, what 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 does our brain do? Right. We 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 sort of we take the myriad of experiences that we have, the information that we learn, we process it, we, 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 we sift through it, and then we 
we we decide to you know make a statement or write a sentence and it's like gpt in many ways in my mind models that kind of the functions that our brain does right we all none of our ideas are entirely novel in the no, sense that they don't have a source that. right yeah um so it is interesting you know and, and we create new brain waves as we create new kind of new neural connectors as we think and that's an important part of the human development and experience um but gpt is not that different <laughs> in that sense of you know kind of how it works yeah and i yeah. think um a lot of people are very confident at the moment they can detect content that's being created by gpt and 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 i i'm i've been playing around and yes to an extent you can there's an element of um not superficiality but it, it it doesn't always feel it feels like it's feigning knowledge uh when you read something back that there, there, there lacks a depth um but probably not in all cases and um it will get better. It will get smarter. It will be harder to detect. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's exciting, a little scary, but exciting as well. <laughs> so let's talk about the exciting for a minute, because I think that is important. I, my feeling, at least in the public eye, and I'm sure it's different behind closed doors, is that you know the the messaging as a whole, and I'm generalizing here, of the publishing world has been you know slam the brakes before we hit the gas, and and, and there's a certain level of responsibility to that, and that makes sense. Um, it even sounds like even within Memerald, you know, there are the possibilities that you're entertaining internally. And then there's the sort of formal policy until we know better, which which makes sense. Um, but I'm kind of curious to hear from you. What are some of those opportunities that you kind of, you know, even in a very uh, initial, um, you know, kind of just brainstorming and kicking ideas around? What are some of those exciting opportunities that you've seen that can be applications of GPT that are used for code? Yeah, Um you know, I think AI tools have always been used by publishers in, in recent times to, you know, to support the publication process, to, you know, to help correct errors in grammar, spelling, punctuation, house style. We use them to analyze data on user behavior on our platforms and identify engagement, um, you know, around page views, clicks, time spent on a page. So, you know, that those AI tools have, have always been supporting that. I think where ChatGPT goes further and is also an open AI tool um, means there's just a lot more potential uses, um, not just for publishers, but also for researchers. So, um, you know, the ability to analyze, you know, large swathes of data, um, uh, the ability for publishers to help researchers through personalized searches based on, 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 their, their, their choices on, on a platform. Um, and then I read a really interesting article, and I think, uh, I think it was research information, a colleague from Emerald participated in it, as well as um, uh, uh, a colleague from, uh, from Springer, but we're talking about the uses of AI for peer review um, and, you know, combating uh, reviewer fatigue and diminishing reviewer pools. So it was suggested that AI tools could support the translation of research articles into the home language of the researcher who's got English as an additional language. They could do their their peer review in their own language and then it could be translated back. Um, and that really, uh, you know, that that removes barriers for for um researchers with um, English as an additional language that they can then be part of that review process and it, it removes that the pressure on reviewer pools and, and speeds up the time to publication so that's that would be an amazing 
um, use case for ChatGPT. Um, yeah. I know we had a, a call this week with the SDG uh, uh, Compact Fellows, and we were really excited about the natural language capabilities and the creation of lay summaries, again, to get research beyond academia into the hands of an audience, a practitioner or, or, or a wider society who will be able to use it. So there are some really positive benefits, I think. And those are the bits yeah. that we get excited about. If it can do the heavy lifting for some of the, you know, the grunt work when you're creating, I guess, guidance, I think there'll always be a human curation element. But if there are ways of, of, of speeding up um, routine processes, uh, that that that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Without getting into the weeds, I will I will just make a comment in parentheses, which is that um, I, I like the idea of the translation for the peer review. I think it could be really positive. Um, I would personally, based on the research that I've done, actually start with the more classic machine translation tools, um, which are more um, are less are the, the the writing is not as fluid and is is more yeah. clunky, more literal but is more accurate, whereas, um, you know, ChatGPT is known to hallucinate. And we, we've seen this in our internal <laughs> research as well, is that it can just make shit up. Um, and that's that that's not something that we want in order to improve the scientific um, rigor and process. So so I think it's a great idea. Um, but I, I, if we're talking about pumping the brakes, I'm not sure I would do that with GPT per se, but I do think with some of the more, you know, advanced um, neural machine translation models, that, that, that could be a really cool um you know kind of experiment to do and see see how it works and i think that's the thing don't don't be frightened of the technology i think yeah. that human intervention or that human curation is always going to uh, need to be there so uh, approach it with excitement and caution uh, a combination of both <laughs> yeah um Sally, we've got a you know i know we we had planned a, an entire section on um on, on open access and but I'm also wary of the time and I appreciate that the time you've already given us um, so far um, but maybe you can just you know kind of finish off with a little bit of a reflection now that we've been through you know I don't know where you want to pick this as the starting point but you know 10 15 20 years of of, of, of open access um, and specifically within the context of our previous what we've been discussing which is you know the mission and 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 fairness and and making sure that research was really getting out there in a proper way. Um, and I think that the you know the 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 founding philosophers or the founding of, of of thinkers about open access really did have this intention. To what extent do you believe that's been delivered and executed on, and and what work maybe still needs to be done in order to try and get there? So I think a lot of progress has happened on open access by a great number of individuals, organisations, and institutions. Um, but yeah, it's clear there's a long way to go. And one of the biggest barriers to overcome is how to remove the paywall without raising barriers to publication for unfunded authors. And that's particularly important in in um, SSH where, um, you know, authors, researchers aren't supported to open the version of record um, and don't have the same opportunities as those working in STEM research at the moment. Um, and it's a complex issue, and I think we're far from solving it. So funded authors or those in wealthy institutions who have access to publishing support via things like transformative agreements are in general really well supported. But even where they are supported, I think there's still that complexity um, and it can feel overwhelming. So um, it's very clear also that that different countries are different, taking different approaches, which means it's very difficult to transform a whole program in a sustainable way. 
Um, so it does mean that we have to um, just go as fast as um, our communities are, will allow or are able. Um, and for us, most of our authors are unfunded. So it's really important that we think as a, as a publisher um, about the range of options and the ways that we can support our authors and the, and, and um, help them on their way to an open journey the best way we can. So um, it's fluid um, and there's, there's still a way to go. But I think, I think we all agree in the principle that, that, you know, the big issues of the day that we've been talking about and we, we were talking about COVID and how important it is for research to be in front of the paywall, but also recognising that in a lot of disciplines, it's still not funded. Yeah, yeah. Sally, um, this has been really um, eye-opening and informative, and I really thank you for taking the time out of what I know is your very busy schedule. Um, in order to join me here today, I'm sure that our audience learns a lot from your insights and and also, you know, being willing to go uh, on record. I don't know how important this record, particular record is, but on the record talking about uh, the AI tools as well, because I think that's something that um, is important. I think that, that authors are going to be turning to to publishers, and I totally understand publishers' desire and need to kind of make um, in decision that's based on data and and, and thought and, and reflection, um, but also being able to respond in, in good time, right? That's the balance of, that seems to be the theme, the recurring theme of this decade, right? How do we respond quickly and uh, responsibly, um, no matter what the advances are? And, and, and let's assume we're only in 2023, so like we've got time, <laughs> <laughs> time to go here. We've got seven years of who knows what's going to happen. Years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So thank you so much. And um, I look forward to continuing this conversation in, 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 in here or in, in different fora and, um, and, and, and encourage everyone. Uh, if anyone does want to, you know, uh, uh, learn more or, or, you know, check you out, or do you have any presence on any of the socials or do you stay away and, and prefer no, to, I'm, you know? I am on social. So you'll find me on LinkedIn. You'll also find me on Twitter. Um, yeah. So, so, please reach out. Always happy to, to, to have a conversation and, and learn different perspectives. Right. All right. Thanks so much, Sally. Thank you, Alvi. Bye-bye now.